Support for this podcast and the following message come from Gaia.com, the on-demand streaming TV service that helps you achieve your highest potential at your convenience. To get your first month at only 99 cents, visit GAIA.com forward slash My 7 Chakras. My 7 Chakras, episode 225. People say I'm disciplined, but it's not discipline, it's devotion, and there's a big difference. The 7 Chakras swirling vortices of energy positioned throughout our body from the base of the spine to the crown of the head. For thousands of years, this ancient wisdom has been passed on from master to disciple. What are the functions of these energy centers? And could these chakras help you unlock your destiny and find your true purpose? Welcome to My 7 Chakras, and now your host, Aditya Jai Kumar. Kumar. What's up, Action Tribe? AJ here, your friend and the voice behind My 7 Chakras, the show where we explore the secrets of the ancient world to uncover nuggets of wisdom that will change your life. So if you're longing to discover the secrets and the mysteries of the universe around you and the universe within you, then you have arrived at the right podcast, my friend. And after doing 224 episodes so far, I found that you guys love the book recommendations shared at the end of each episode. And yes, our guests have shared so many amazing books so far. And I want to make that easier for you to capture the books that are shared because sometimes I know it can be hard, especially if you're listening to the show on the go. And that's why I've put together a document featuring the 21 must-read spiritual books that will help you look at life differently. To download your copy, visit our website my7chakras.com forward slash reading list. That's my7chakras.com forward slash reading list. So you go on there, put down your best email and wait for the download link to appear in your email. Many people have already downloaded this sheet. So make sure you grab yours as soon as possible. The link that you need is my7chakras.com forward slash reading list. And with that, it is now time to bring on our special featured guest for today, Eric Mezel. So Eric, are you ready to inspire? I am indeed, AJ. Lovely to be with you. Wonderful. So Eric Mezel is the author of more than 50 books, including his latest, Overcoming Your Difficult Family. He has been quoted and featured in a variety of publications, including Martha Stewart Living, Red Book, Glamour, Men's Health, The San Francisco Chronicle, and self. He lives in San Francisco Bay Area and today he is with us on today's show. Now Action Tribe, through my research and emails that I've received from you, I found that uh, the support and space that your family provides you can really help you grow, learn and develop as a person. On the other hand, if you've grown up in a household that is maybe narrow-minded, slightly dysfunctional or is negative overall, it can really hamper your growth, lead to stress and ultimately health issues. And that's why I really felt that Eric uh, today would be able to share some of what he's learned through his work and his study of family dynamics. And I'm sure that you will get some great ideas and actionable steps that you can implement in your life and transform. That's why we're having this show. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. I'm glad to be here. Wonderful. And like always, like we always do, let us begin with some inspiration. Uh, My question to you is, what is your favorite inspirational quote? And how do you apply that in in your life? Well, I've collected many hundreds of quotes over the years because I've done whole quote books, so I have lots of quotes, but Mm -hmm. the one that's been on my mind recently is the quote from the late Pavarotti, the singer, and he said that people say I'm disciplined, but it's not discipline, it's devotion, and there's a big difference. A lot of the people I work with as a creativity coach, I work with creative performing artists, worry about whether they're disciplined enough to get their work done. And I think they're thinking the wrong sort of thing when they put it in the category of discipline. Mm -hmm. It's more devotion that we need. Devotion being a synonym to love and passion and curiosity and interest. We actually need more love for our work than more discipline around our work. Wonderful. I really, really love this quote. Uh, Not heard it before, but it's so powerful. The difference action try between discipline and devotion. And to me, when I here devotion it's more like inbound right it's driven not by an external force 
uh, for you to want to get somewhere, but it's driven by, like Eric shared, the love that comes from within and the curiosity that stems from within. And if you have that curiosity and love uh, and that devotion overall, then no matter what goal you have, whether it's music or whether it's studies or business, I'm sure the journey is going to be much more smoother and you'll get there uh, with less friction. So thanks a lot for sharing that wonderful, wonderful quote with us. Uh, and I wanted to really ask you, what inspired you to write your new book, Overcoming Your Difficult Family? You know, the, the older I get, the longer that answer becomes, because it seems to mm. flow out of my whole human history. So I'm going to give you a fairly long answer to that simple question. Sure. I, I started out as a math and science boy. I went to a special math and science high school in New York City. I thought I was going to be a physicist. But at some point early on, um, I saw, for me at least, that the sciences weren't human enough. They, human beings interested me, not scientific um, evidence or scientific questions. On the other hand, I appreciated the scientific method. I appreciated the idea of actually running experiments and knowing things different from just supposing things. So I've had this thread my whole life of both being interested in human affairs but also respecting the scientific method. So many of the things that go on today, especially in the mental health world, are not rooted in the scientific method. And that disturbs me, and that's why I'm an activist in the mental health world. So when I stopped being a math and science boy, I enlisted in the Army when I was 18. When I came out, I got a degree in philosophy. I think that's important, too, because I've always been interested in existential thought and as you know, existential thought focuses on the idea of personal responsibility, ideas of freedom, also ideas of absurdity, that it's sort of absurd the way we're dropped into this world and expected to live and do well and maintain meaning and maintain our life purpose. It's all a little odd that we're dropped into this world. Mm -hmm. So I did that. I was a philosophy major. Then I started writing my first novel when I was 24. And I've been writing books now for the last 45 years, and I've written 50 or 60 books in that time. So obviously a lot of things have interested me over time. In my early 30s, I retooled from being a writer to being a family therapist. I trained to be a family therapist, and that's what I did. I worked with particularly artist families, which is hard work, and then especially with artist couples, which is also hard work having a number of human beings in the room with you with their various agendas and refereeing their difficulties is, is really quite hard work. Mm -hmm. At some point, I stopped believing in the therapy model of diagnosing and treating mental disorders. I didn't think that the folks sitting across from me had mental disorders. I thought they had challenges in living. So I no longer believed in the model, and I became a coach and I've worked as a creativity coach for the last 35 years or so, helping individual creative and performing artists. Throughout that time, I've done all kinds of books about their issues, whether it's creativity and depression or creativity and anxiety or creativity and addiction. But throughout that time, I have noticed the extent to which an individual creative or performing artist is hindered or impaired either by past family experiences, things that happened in their childhood, or current family experiences. So it struck me that it was time to write a book about family life. I've been writing so many books about individual life that it seemed about time to do a book about family life. Wonderful. Thanks a lot for sharing that wonderful response. Uh, now, you mentioned that the first novel you wrote when you know you were 24 and then you started writing more books until uh, I believe the age of 30 when you became a family therapist working with artist families. So why artist families? When I was in training as a family therapist, I was at a very interesting transpersonal counseling center in San Francisco where I was allowed the latitude to um, create an even Evening, uh, evenings of presenters. And so I, it struck me, I wondered who was working with artists because as a, as a writer, I wondered who cared about my issues, were there people out there who cared about my issues. <clears throat> so I invited 
in a variety of people. I didn't know these different categories. I didn't know what an art therapist did or just didn't know who these people were exactly. And what I learned after bringing in all of these presenters was that no one seemed to be focusing on the, the issues of creative folks, the special issues that we experience, whether they're issues around depression and anxiety and addiction or whether they're marketplace issues or whether they're resistance and blockage to doing the work. So it struck me, on the one hand, that this would be an excellent niche, just from a marketing standpoint. It was a great niche to be working with a population that other folks were not working with. But also, it just really interested me. My issues and the issues of my fellow creatives interested me, and I wanted to work with creative families. Got it. Now, I know that today's topic is all about family dynamics, but before we move on to talking about your new book just wanted to speak about the topic of creativity and depression and anxiety because those two topics often go hand in hand i've even heard tim ferris who uh, wrote the book for our uh, uh, body and in a couple of other books he speaks a lot about depression and how to cope with it but why do these uh, you know these two topics for example depression and anxiety go hand in hand with creativity i need to um, provide a pretty elaborate answer First of all, I don't believe that depression is a breakage in the plumbing, that it's a pseudo-medical problem. I think it's old-fashioned despair mm. and not a pseudo-medical or biological problem. The current paradigm makes believe that it's a biological problem that's best treated with chemicals, and so that's the predominant paradigm and that's what most people believe when they hear the word depression they think that something broke and that they need medication for it so i don't take that position so i need to start there i think that the reason that existential despair threads through a creative person's life is that it's hard to sustain meaning and hard to keep believing that what you're doing matters as a creative person First of all, it's hard to have your products wanted in the marketplace, so that's depressing. But also, there's that basic question of, is another photograph needed? Is another poem needed? Is another anything needed of that sort? And I think creative people struggle. On a given day, they believe that the poem that they want to put into the world is very important. And then the next day, they wonder, why bother? Why bother when they could be doing a different kind of work, maybe a, so to speak, bigger kind of work in the world, a more activist kind of work than sitting there and writing another poem. So I think that there's, an ex there's, a, there's a background coloration of existential despair in most creative folks' lives, and that's the depression we're talking about, that depression that connects to the difficulty of keeping meaning afloat. It's very hard for a creative person to keep the experience of meaning afloat day in and day out. That's the depression piece the anxiety piece, it's very, very interesting, I think. Anxiety threads through the creative process naturally and fundamentally. Why is that? Creating is essentially one choice after another. That's what yes. the creative process is. It's put the comma in, take the comma out. Mm -hmm. Send your character to Paris or maybe send your character to Zanzibar. Put a little red in or put a little blue in. It's one choice after another and choosing provokes anxiety. <clears throat> there have been great social psychological experiments to show the extent to which if you confront a person by more than two choices, namely three choices or more, they get paralyzed. Well, creating is an infinite number of choices. I think the creative folks don't understand the extent to which they refuse to do their work because the activity of, the activity of choosing makes them anxious. I think that's the real root of everyday resistance is, oh, my God, I have to make more choices today. I don't <laughs> want to. Let me turn on the TV or let me, let me check C-SPAN or something. Let me check my email. So I think that's one of, the, one of the many, many reasons why anxiety threads through the creative process. What this means is you have to embrace it. You can't hope <clears throat> anxiety is, our, is, is a feature of our early warning system against danger. And we don't want to get rid of that early warning system. It's not like we're trying to eliminate anxiety. Rather, we're trying to figure out individually how to manage it, how to best manage it. Because it's coming. It's coming because creating is choosing. It's coming because creating is going into the unknown. 
It's coming before, because creating is a certain kind of performing. And as you probably know, the number one anxiety, the number one phobia in the world is public speaking. Right. People yes. are afraid to speak in their own voice. So there's that anxiety. I could name 20, 30, 40 different kinds of anxieties or sources of anxiety that thread through the creative process. And having named all of those, I would exhaust you. But the, the headline is that creative folks need portable anxiety management tools that actually work for them. It's, it's one thing to have a wonderful meditation practice for that first hour of the day. But if that isn't somehow portable, if you aren't somehow also mindful and calm and relaxed when you go to your canvas or your computer screen, then you may not go there. You may not go to your canvas or your computer screen because, well, you were nicely re relaxed at 6 in the morning, but now it's 10 a.m. and you can't quite face the blank canvas or the blank screen. That's why these anxiety management techniques need to be portable. They need to be things you can bring with you throughout your day. It's sort of yoga off the mat. There's yoga on the mat, then there's yoga off the mat. And, you, and creative folks really need great yoga off the mat techniques. Wonderful. Yoga off the mat. I love that. Now, Eric, what is the importance of having good family dynamics? A couple of different ways to think about that. One is that one of our life purposes for most people, and for me, there's no purpose to life. There are just our life purpose choices. There are the things that we can each individual considers important. I think for most people, they consider relationships important, or they at least would like to consider relationships important. Sometimes relating is so difficult that it's hard to remember that we want it to be important. But I think most people do. So for that reason, the, the idea of family life is important to folks. They, they want to invest meaning in that idea. To say that more simply, family life is one of those few things that's really important. Service may be another, activism may be another, creating may be another, but family life is one of those maybe top dozen important things. So when it isn't working, then you're experiencing life as less meaningful as it otherwise would be experienced, and you're feeling like you're not really living one of your life purposes. If you're in a relationship with somebody and you kind of don't want to be in that relationship or you actually know that somewhere down the road, a divorce is coming or separation is coming. Well, that then throughout that time that you're living with this person but also wanting to leave, mm. you're also experiencing life as less meaningful and less purposeful as it otherwise would be. Got it. Got it. And I love the fact that you said most people do consider relationships important, but what if we can't relate? Right, because I, I, you know, since relate stems, I mean, relationship stems from the word relate. So I guess the goal then is to add more meaning to the relationships that very often we are born into. Right, we are born into our family. Yes, I, the short answer is as as you're saying it. The short answer is to work at it, mm. and that's that's true with anything. If we say that something's important to us, then yep. the next thing we need to say is I have to work at it. I may not be a natural at it. Uh, maybe you know for. Creative people, a lot of creative people enjoy their solitude, prefer working on their novel than talking to their family members. Right. That, that may be true. Yep. But then if you also want relationships and you've got to shut your novel down at a certain point in the day, you have to put a period there and then you have to actively say to yourself, time to relate. And that means cl clearing your head of your obsession with your novel, whatever that means whatever ceremonial work you know to do to clear your head, maybe it's a hot shower or maybe it's a certain um, incantation or whatever it is you want to get the novel out of your head you now want to be available to other human beings, the other human beings around you and that's a certain kind of work, historically a lot of creative people have been unwilling to do that work they end up but a little too narcissistic, a little too grandiose a little too involved in their own work and then also ultimately too cold and alone and they find themselves alone. They, they may do great. Van Gogh's a great example of someone who did great work but also found himself too alone, ultimately committed suicide, not because he wasn't painting well. He was painting well, but the rest of life wasn't working. No, no. really quickly, I see two scenarios that might occur. So in one case, a, f a person might be in a family where he or she knows that there is some dysfunction, something is wrong, I need to work towards it. But sometimes you're in a family and you assume that is the normal, right? So it becomes your new normal. So you're not even aware that this is not how a 
you know, family with good dynamics is. So just for us to get a better understanding, what are some characteristics or signs of a family that has good dynamics? Any Anything to share there? Well, let me start the other way around because um, it's an interesting point. So Jung created the concept of blind spots, and I think it's a very smart concept. I think we're often surprised by how we can miss noticing the things that are right in front of us, including the things going on in our own household. I think you're very right there. And that's why you know I present eight skills in the book, and several of them, clarity and awareness especially, are skills that I'm suggesting for exactly this reason, that we need to patiently, and I would say ceremonially, and by that I mean just sort of solemnly, sit with ourselves and try to gain as much clarity and awareness about what's going on as is possible. Because I think, I agree with you that one of the bottom line dynamics in families is not noticing what's going on. So I think that that's one of the tasks, challenges of human life is to gain clarity and awareness by deciding that clarity and awareness are good things. There are reasons why we have defenses like denial and blind spots and all kinds of other defenses. There are reasons, and that is we don't want to know what's going on. If we knew, if we learned what was going on, we might have to make big changes in our life. We might have to leave the family. We might have to protect ourselves. We might have to do X, Y, and Z. Often we know that that's that's what would happen if we really noticed. Therefore, we defensively refuse to notice. That's why another couple of the skills are courage and strength. Because I think it takes courage to be less defensive than we usually are. So that's a long-winded way of saying I think we need these eight skills to do the kind of work you suggest to even know what's going on. Then, what are we looking for? Well, first of all, we're looking to be safe. I think that's a headline. You want to feel safe in your own environment. If you're being bullied, abused, all the different things we could say about the ways in which human beings make it unsafe for other human beings, that's, that's not okay. You have to realize it's not okay. You don't want it to be your problem. You don't want to try to figure out, and for a young person, this is hard to do. You don't want to try to figure out how you caused the other person to be bullying you. That's, that's their issue. That's their problem. It's not your problem. It's your problem in the sense that you're being bullied, but you didn't cause it. So for that, you may have to find allies either inside the family, in the extended family, or outside the family. You may have to create a new family. For adult human beings, often our family of origin is not our, our best family for us. And we have to create a family out of friends and peers and colleagues and like-minded folks and what have you. And maybe keep our distance from family members who are not okay. So, A, safety first. B, you want a basic amount of respect. That's different from being bullied or what have you, but you don't... When somebody first greets you in your family, you don't want the first thing that they say to be some sort of veiled or overt criticism. Right. You don't want to be living a life where you're just being criticized. You want to be respected more than that. So that's something that in a healthy family, there's lots of respect. And then the third is you want there to be some love in your family. We have this thousand-year mythology around romantic love and the troubadours singing songs about love and we act as if love is a given but it isn't i think most families are relatively loveless people come at each other much more from a resenting place and a critical place and a agenda place than from a loving place so if you're in a family that where you're not experiencing much love well you may want to if it's safe to you may want to Everybody may be hard-edged, and you may want to soften a little and maybe be the love in the family if that's safe to do. But at any rate, you want to be love somewhere in the world, in your own relationships, in your next family. You may not be very practiced at knowing how to love if you haven't been in a family where love was in real supply. And that may be one of your edges, one of your work for the for your whole life is learning how to be loved some really really interesting points over here action tribe firstly 
I mean, the first step is to really gain some clarity and awareness and be mindful of what's going on in your home because the situation might have really reached a new normal. We assume everything is normal. So sit with yourself and try to gain clarity into what is really going on. And then, uh, like we're discussing, safety, respect, and love. Safety without being bullied and abused. Uh, Respect. How they greet you the first thing in the morning. How are they interacting with you? Are they negative? Are they sarcastic? Yeah. Do, they, do their eyes light up or do they? Do their eyes go to that cold place? Most folks' eyes go to that cold place. Got it. Got it. And love. Uh, you know, it's amazing that you point this out because a lot of people assume that love is a given. Like you've said, sometimes there's this resentment. Even indifference uh, is not good because is emptiness so love is so important uh or, you know even though that's you might right. have safety and respect I think, let, me, let me make a distinction here if i may and that yeah. that's the, the distinction between indifference and what's called benign neglect yeah I, I i think it's wonderful for a child growing up if his parents are not too intrusive that is if there's enough benign neglect so that you can have your independent life and your independent feeling and your feelings and your independent thoughts, that's a great thing. That's yeah. different from indifference. You kind of want to know as a child that your parents are there. They're just not hovering around you. They're not sitting on your shoulders, but, but that they're there and that they're completely available and that they're on your side and that they do love you. So I think that there's an interesting distinction and dynamic difference between indifference and benign neglect. I think there, there are a lot of intrusive families that sort of look loving but they're not really loving. They're more intrusive than loving. Got it. So just to get some clarity, are you saying indifference is something that parents should have or or no? No, indifference is indifference is the bad thing. Exactly. Okay. And benign neglect is the good thing in the sense of you don't you don't as a parent or as a mate, you don't want to be indifferent to what's going on in the other person's life. You just don't want to be intrusive. You want to give the, you want to give them space, but you want to care. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I read somewhere online. The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference because that's really bad. Uh, So, uh, uh, Eric, what are some negative impacts of living with a difficult family? Now, like like we discussed before, I think you mentioned that the negative impact might be immediate or maybe, uh, you know, the person might have a bad childhood and upbringing in a family and that might manifest in his or her life as an artist. So what are some negative impacts we're looking at? Uh, of not having well, safety, the, respect, just, and love. Just all the things we know, all the things we've named over time, despair, anxiety, addictions, mm-hmm. low self-esteem, shame, guilt, just all the things that we've named for the last hundred years are typical results of growing up in a difficult or dysfunctional family. Absolutely. And as you speak uh, about these challenges, what comes to my mind is, uh, you know, the the fish bowl of of goldfish, you know, you have a goldfish at home. And to a child, that's the only environment the child knows. The child does not know the entire world, does not know how it is happening in different families. That's the, the family is the world to the child. And so if the water is negative, if the water is not empowering, if there's no love, it'll affect the goldfish in the end. And that reflects in the future as well. That's right. I think, though, that nowadays, um, all children are seeing other families, other styles, whether it's on social mm-hmm. media or television yeah. or out in the world. So I, I, I think that there's, let me give you my, my model of personality that so I can connect this point up. I think we come into the world with what I call original personality. That is, each human being is already different at birth. Psychology pays no attention to this. It has no way to think about original personality. It sort of claims that everybody starts from the same place, which isn't true. If you've had kittens or puppies or kids, you know that every creature is already itself the second it's born with its own idiosyncrasies. So there's original personality. Then there's what I call formed personality, and that's sort of the way we accrete over time, the way we become our repetitive sort of cemented self. And then the third part I call available personality, and that's our remaining freedom, sort of the existential idea of freedom, our remaining freedom to be the person we want to be. I think even kids have available personality. That is, even as they're being formed in the crucible of their family, some percentage, you can almost think of it as a quantity, some quantity of freedom remains for them to take action on their own behalf. So I'm hoping 
that whoever is is the reader of this book or listening to us has enough available personality left to make whatever changes he or she deems necessary. Got it. I love how you explained that. Original personality, formed personality, and available personality. Uh, So, Eric, what are some skills or tools that you talk about in the book that can help a person overcome this difficult situation? Well, I present lots of uh, ceremonies and tactics and strategies throughout the book. There isn't one kind of headline strategy. Rather, there are things to try. For instance, uh, let's say you grow up in one of these anxious families where everybody is a little bit on edge and anxious and you notice, and, and maybe maybe this is also, parenthetically, maybe this is a feature of everybody's original personality in that family. Maybe every family member was born a little anxious, you included. You know, no, no one knows if this is true or not. But what this means is anxiety is going to be an issue for you by virtue of the way your family makes you anxious and by virtue of your own anxiety. Therefore, you really need some calming tactics I've presented all kinds of anxiety management tactics in different books. In this one, the one that I like, a very simple one, I think it's very powerful. And that's the ceremony of getting a snow globe and shaking it up. And then as the snow settles, experiencing yourself as settling. That is using the visual representation of the snow settling in that snow globe as a kind of way of allowing yourself to settle. Again, a simple thing, not a gigantic idea, but I don't scorn tactics of that sort. I think we have to actually, in our daily life, not just know about things to try, but actually do them. That's why I'm big on the idea of practice, especially for creative people. I think every creative person needs a morning creativity practice, or else he or she probably won't get her work done. Mm -hmm. So I believe in the idea of practice, of doing things on a daily basis, I believe in the idea of a morning life purpose check-in, just like a minute, where you say, where you kind of go over your life purpose choices, where you kind of remind yourself about what's important to you, right. and then you figure out how you're going to get some of those things onto your daily to-do list. Because even if we know what our life purposes are, often we don't get to live them. Often we're just running errands and de- dealing with our daily responsibilities. So, true. so this is all by way of saying what I'm presenting in the book are things to try, Things like daily practices, things like certain kinds of tactics and ceremonies and strategies. These are the things I think we need to do in order to deal with the challenges we face. Wonderful. I I love the uh, ceremony that you recommended to us. In fact, a couple of weeks back, I attended a workshop where they were teaching heart imagery. And what I learned is visualization is one of the most powerful ways of healing and transformation uh, from thousands of years. But what you have done is you've made that visualization even more easier by Uh, you know, suggesting that a person gets this uh, snow globe and, Mm -hmm. you know, whenever they're feeling, uh, you know, they're they're not calm or a little bit anxious, they just shake it up, look at the snow globe. And as the snowflakes settle down, they just have to visualize themselves also settling down gradually and slowly as the snowflakes settle onto the ground within that wonderful globe. So love that uh, technique. Thanks a lot for sharing that with us. Yeah. And I, I believe in visualization of all sorts. As you maybe know, visualization started in, in Northern California at a certain hospital mm. where it occurred to someone to have people, have patient, cancer patients, okay. visualize their healthy cells defeating their unhealthy cells. So that, I mean, of course, visualization is thousands of years old, but, the, but our current versions of it come mm. from that Northern California moment. And I've studied visualizing and I'm actually working on a book with 40 interesting visualizations that flow from the metaphor of our mind as a certain kind of room that we get to decorate. Mm. And I think it's really pretty interesting. But at any rate, this is a long-winded addition to your response, and, and that is I, I think it's very important to carve out some time, sit calmly, and engage in these kinds of visualizations. Because I think cognitive work alone, that is changing our talk, which is very important, Changing our talk is not quite enough. We need some additional methods to make the changes we need to make. And one of those additional methods is visualizing. Got it. Now, in your book, you also talk about some of the common types of dysfunctional families that you've seen over the years, right? So could you give us a better idea of some of the different types of dysfunctional families that you've seen in your work? 
Sure. And the headline, the place I need to start is that, of course, no family is perfectly one of these things. All families mm-hmm. are blended and made up of different kinds of dysfunctions and challenges. But I thought it'd be useful to create these 10 categories just to help people maybe think about what the main flavor of their own family might have been or might currently be. So the first family are sad and anxious families. I think this may be one of the predominant families because if you look at the epidemic of what's called clinical depression and the epidemic of what's called generalized anxiety disorder, if you take those two things together, that must mean that there are lots of households with folks who are suffering from despair and anxiety. So that's one family type. The second we sort of alluded to a little while ago in an interesting way, and those are loveless and distant families. Those are families where there just is not an abundance of love. People keep their distance. Often when one person enters the room, the other person leaves the room. There's lots of, so to speak, privacy, but it's not the good privacy of people caring about each other, but allowing them to be independent, but the bad privacy of, as you said, indifference. The third category is the category of warring and divided families. Lots of families are divided. Certainly lots of blended families are divided along the along the fault lines of who the real parents are, who the you know, who the new parents are, all of that. But many families are divided. And I've been realizing in doing many of these interviews for this book, how many of the hosts have been interested in sibling divisions? How many of the hosts in their own lives are at war with one or another of their siblings? And, mm. and maybe really at the, at, the, at the outs with that sibling, that, that, that there's been a full rupture between them. So I think that there are lots of warring and divided families out there. Then the next category I call bullying and abusive families. These are typically families with one particular tyrant, often the father, but not necessarily, who does the bullying in the family. I grew up uh, with just my mother, my mother and I, and I loved that. I thought that was a blessing because I would see I'd be out playing ball with my friends on the streets of Brooklyn. And at 5 or 5.30 or 6, their fathers would start coming home and all hell would break loose. The, the bullying, the authoritarianism, the this, the that, the essential cruelty would happen the instant the fathers came home. And it would play itself out, you know, in all the ways we know about those severe dinner tables and all of these rules and what have you. Mm-hmm. But I felt blessed not to have one of those fathers. I think an awful lot of households have that sort of titular head who does a lot of bullying. And whether, whether the abuse is, you know, physical or emotional or not even quite any of those things, the bullying still goes on. So really quickly, I mean, it's really interesting that you speak about this type of family, which is a bullying and abusive families. And sometimes, like you've mentioned, it might be the father who is trying to assert power and uh, control the family, so to speak. And it seems like I've uh, you know, studied about a similar archetype in, um, in some work by Joseph Campbell, who you spoke about uh, uh, the hero's journey. Uh, and sometimes, uh, you, you, you know, so you have the father who is maybe abusive or trying to, you know, be the supreme leader of the family. Yep. And then you have the son who grows old, 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 and now the son is an adult now. And so there's this moment of not being able to relinquish some of that power, and that causes friction. Have you seen that in families where, you know, the father well, is old now? Just, not just friction, but, but ruptures. Right. I, it, it's interesting to me how often family members stop talking to each other for years on end over these issues. And that, that's, I, would, I was going to say that that's the extreme case, but that's It's really not so extreme. It's quite common. I mean, what more normally happens is that folks get together for Thanksgiving and Christmas or whatever and barely manage to make it through that time and can't wait to get away. That's what more usually happens. But very often the ruptures are more complete than that. And some family members just don't show up ever for those events. And as you say, it's often often about that, the father-son dynamic. It's often, as I said, these Sibling abuse is quite amazingly uh, common and prevalent. The older brother abusing the younger daughter, the younger sister kind of thing. So there's lots of that friction in families, and often the younger sister no longer wants to come to Thanksgiving because not only does she not want to be around her tyrannical father, but she doesn't want to be around her tyrannical brothers. 
So there's an awful lot of this stuff going on. Thanks a lot for sharing that perspective. I'm sure many of our listeners are trying to understand and relate to what might be happening in their family as well. Because like we're learning, Action Tribe, there's always a solution. This is not forever. And there are things that you can do in order to transform that relationship or whatever it is. Or maybe if nothing is possible, then finding a new family, there is something that you can do. Now, Eric, uh, diving a bit deeper, many of our listeners are maybe born into families that are extremely religious and at times close minded. So when this person listens to a show like ours and learns about energy healing or meditation or yoga, they experience a lot of friction at home because of uh, you know lack of support from the family uh, and at times a lot of fear that is driven. So what advice do you have for such a person who wants to develop themselves and be open to new ideas, but at the same time experience a lot of restriction and conflict from family members because of their newfound quest? Be courageous is the headline. It's going to take courage to make that break. Um, it often takes, I, I've done some studying on this, it often takes five to six years to make this kind of change where you actually stand up for your, your new belief system. So it would be lovely if that could be done sooner rather than later. If you kind of know that you've seen through your family's belief system, that's not, that's not your belief system, but you're still paying lip service to it for all the reasons we could name, you may want to stand up for your belief system sooner rather than later. There are going to be consequences of that. One of the major consequences that I've seen for believers who leave their belief system is the actual loss of their home church, that that was a friendly place for them, that that was family, yeah. their home church. Mm-hmm. And so now they're, they're bereft. If, you're, if you go all the way from being a, believe, a religious believer to being an atheist, well, there are no atheist churches. So you're really stuck with a kind of existential aloneness that you're going to have to deal with. You can, you can go meet with three other atheists, but it's not going to feel like the way your home church felt. So that's a that's a big loss. That's something to gr- I've discovered that that's something that believers really have to grieve is the loss of their home church. Once they decide that they no longer believe and that they can't go through the, those motions because those motions are no longer authentic to them, then they're going to have to grieve the loss of their mm-hmm. home church. Mm-hmm. But I'm guessing the goal over here is to, not to repress these emotions, right? Because pent up emotions can ultimately lead to some sort of stress anxiety or even health issues so the so the goal is to uh, not wait for that many years and if possible uh, release those emotions express your feelings and thoughts that, that is the goal there's no there's no easy answer here mm. the answer must not be let, let's say let's say let's switch the issue slightly let's say that you're 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 gay you know it and you're in a gay unfriendly household mm-hmm. You can't repress that to the end of time and be healthy. It will not work. We know that will not work. Whether you tell your family or not is a separate question, but how you live your life, you need to live your life as a gay person. Mm-hmm. Whatever, whatever that means for family life, that's the way you need to live your life in order to live authentically and an emotionally healthy life. No one in their right mind is going to say that's easy. It's just the better way than living the repressed way. The repressed way leads to more suicidality, more physical ailments, as you mentioned, more darkness, more self-loathing, more disappointment, more of everything negative. So even though stepping out and being independent and free and brave is not easy, that's what's necessary necessary Mm -hmm. now let's move on to another member of the family what advice uh, do you have for mothers who are struggling with their ever-changing and unpredictable relationship with their kids especially if the kid has just become a teenager which i'm sure is a difficult uh, uh, period to manage uh, in the household so what advice do you have for such mothers or parents it's a huge question. I'm the editor for parent resources at a huge website called madinamerica.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so I'm very familiar with the question. Um, one of the pressures nowadays is a pressure that our my parents didn't experience, your, you know, your parents didn't experience, and that's the pressure to have their child receive a mental disorder diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Whether it's ADHD or ODD, oppositional defiant disorder, or child to depression or some childhood anxiety disorder, something. There's tremendous pressure on parents 
when their child either acts out in some ways or shows some distress in some ways, this pressure from, from the media, but especially from school and especially from peers, for the child to be sent to a certain kind of specialist, a psychiatrist, and receive a diagnosis and be put on chemicals. These are not medications because there's no actual illness, but these are chemicals with powerful effects. So headline number one is if you're a parent with a child who's in trouble, try to step back from that and not leap to the diagnosis and treatment place, but rather, I hope, that you can visit a site like Mad in America and look at our various resources that come from the different perspective. Our perspective has three names. It's called either critical psychology, critical psychiatry, or anti-psychiatry. The movement has three different names. But that would be step one, would be to not rush to the diagnosis and chemical place. Step two would be to see if you can cooperate or collaborate with your child. Typically, parenting is a top-down thing. We make demands. We set rules and limits. We try to provide either call them punishments or consequences. But typically, it's a top-down maneuver. And very rarely does a parent sit with a child and ask the question, what might work best here? What might help? Or even... What's going on here? Very rarely will a parent sit down with a child of any age, whether the child is 7 or 14, what's going on here? With a period, I mean, it's a question mark, but what I mean by a period is not rushing on to trying to solve something or put words in your child's mouth, but leaving a lot of spaciousness there for your child to actually think, for your child to feel safe to think about the question, safe that whatever answer he or she gives isn't going to be immediately problem solved or or discounted so to repeat that headline ask your child what's going on give your child the space to really respond and then ask the question what might help often we don't as a parent we don't want to ask that question because we know what might help is maybe my child's going to say well you and dad need a divorce you're always yelling so often we don't ask the question what might help because we're afraid of the answer but if we're a responsible, honorable parent, we want to ask the question, what might help? Love that response. I'm getting uh, two main ideas. Firstly, is to not immediately be in a rush and listen to the different forces that are coming from multiple directions and telling the parents to send their kids to specialists who then give them you know, chemicals yes. that often do more damage than good. So, you know, take us, take some time, take multiple opinions. And the next thing is to really uh, move away from the top-down approach that has been used historically yes. to a more collaborative, team-based, lateral approach where you give your child a space, some ownership, so that the child is able to think, comprehend, and then come up with solutions themselves, which will lead to a better response in so many cases as you're sharing. So thanks a lot for uh, those tips. Now, you talk about the eight strategies in your book that a person can use to deal with uh, difficult uh, family members or relatives, and we've spoken about some of them. Uh, Is there anything that you would like to share, some other strategy maybe that our listeners can take benefit of? Nothing in particular comes to mind, but I I think I'll share one idea. and I I like the idea of a life purpose icon. That is an image that an individual creates for herself that represents sort of how she wants to be in life. Religions have always used those icons, whether it's the Christian cross or the Jewish star of David, and those icons are powerful for people who believe in those things, but individuals typically don't think to create their own kind of symbol of strength like that. So that's just what comes up for me as a last idea is that one, one of the things that can help, since some of the skills I'm presenting are skills like presence and courage and strength and smarts, well, those are all great, and you would want to learn them, but sometimes it's nice to have a simple thing to turn to, and the simple thing to turn to might be your own symbol of strength that maybe you fabricate into a piece of jewelry and wear, something that, you're, that you can hold close and that reminds you of the way you want to be in life. So could this icon uh, you know, only be a totem or a symbol uh, or an object, or could it be like a leader icon you know like a like a very successful singer or maybe a successful uh, boxer like muhammad ali are you referring to that sort of icon as well or is it mainly a symbol it can be it can be, can be whatever works for the person 
um, I've had when people think about what their life purpose icon might be, everything under the sun has come up. I'll give you a quick example. Yeah. I was doing an interview on television, and the interviewer um, couldn't make it, so the, the weather person did the interview instead of the, so to speak, real interviewer. And we were talking about this idea about life purpose icons, and this was a weather person. Yeah. And instantly she said, lightning bolt. That just mm. came up to her as, as the life purpose image that would work for her to hold her life in one encapsulated image. So it could be anything under the sun, including the things you named. Wonderful. So Action Tribe, just in case you're wondering what my icon is, uh, something that comes to my mind right now is the mic because uh-huh. I'm the host. And so this represents multiple things. Firstly, it represents my ability to express my voice yes. uh, without any hesitation or uh, friction. But the other thing is also to express myself metaphorically of who I am, my identity, and my identity that is expressing itself in so many different ways as I am exposed to different ideas from amazing guests like yourself and how I, you know, I'm able to uh, transcend my physical limitations. Exactly. So, Isn't that interesting? As I say, I find that people um, come up with their image or their image comes up for them like almost instantly. I find that very interesting that we, all of us are so close to knowing something and yet yeah. because we don't take the time or we're not, we're not um, helped to do this work, then we don't end up with the results we could have if only we were a little helped to do this work. Now, I love that we're speaking about the concept of life purpose here. And I know that you've written an entire book on that. I believe it's the Life Purpose Bootcamp, which uh, I look forward to reading, uh, and and which is a whole different episode by itself. But for those listening right now, is there any relationship between healthy family dynamics and being able to find your life's purpose? That's that's a big question for for a last question. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think that family dynamics help prevent us from knowing our life purposes because we have to first get over the life purposes that have been spoon-fed to us as the things that are supposed to be important to us. Mm -hmm. So I think family life, on the face of it, um, probably harms our ability to figure out our life purposes to begin with. But then ultimately, one of our life purposes will become, again, family and relationships. Just because I think it's in... In, it's in our genetics. It's, it's in it's in our evolutionary being to yeah. to be interested to not be interested to to need both the intimate relationships of one on one, but also the family relationships. So I think that folks, even if they want to disown family life because of the hardness of the way they grew up, are going to come back around to wanting it and needing it and having it be one of their life purposes. Oh, absolutely. Well, thanks a lot for sharing that uh, with us, Eric. Now, finally, what is that one action step that you'd like to recommend for our listeners who have listened to this episode and your ideas and your stories and would like to take some action in their lives? So what is that one action step that you'd like to recommend? Well, let me just speak to the creative folks out there with respect to an action step, and that is the idea of a morning creativity practice. I think it's so valuable because not only would you get a lot of work done, but you get to make use of of your sleep thinking. Folks don't realize the extent to which we do great thinking while we sleep. And also, if you were to have it be a morning practice, then you'll get to make some meaning first thing that day, and the rest of the day can be half meaningless, and you won't get despairing. So my tip for creatives would be to institute a morning creativity practice On a practical level, there's almost nothing more valuable to do. Action Tribe, to access the show notes for today's episode, visit our website, my7chakras.com forward slash 225. That's my7chakras.com forward slash 225. And before moving on, a word from our sponsor, Gaia.com. Explore the vast traditions of yoga with the Gaia original series, Yogic Paths. Filmed across India, the 13-episode series captures the beauty of mystical Indian landscapes and never-before-seen ashrams while taking the viewer on a journey through the many traditions of yoga. While the practice of physical postures called asanas is most well-known in the West, understanding the full scope of this rich and varied tradition gives meaning and power to the yoga that we know today. Action Tribe, since you're listening to this show, it's clear that you are interested in topics such as chakras, yoga, and self-realization, and you know exactly where to go for audio content and interviews. 
And I sure hope you feel this way about our show, My 7 Chakras. But where do you go if you want a streaming TV video service with the same values and similar content? The answer is Gaia.com. To start watching this show, The Yogic Paths, as well as get your first month at Gaia for just 99 cents, visit Gaia.com forward slash My 7 Chakras. That's G-A-I-A dot com forward slash My S-E-V-E-N-C-H-A-K-R-A-S. The key to success is for you to make a habit throughout your life of doing the things that you fear. This is an amazing quote by Winston Van Gogh, which we heard about earlier uh, during this episode, Action Tribe. By doing the things that you always do, you will get the results you always have. Take a few seconds to imagine all those experiences, all those activities that you've been doing for years now. Things that are so routine that you don't even think about it. You just do it. These activities are within your comfort zone and your body has internalized them. So let's take, for example, driving. Most drivers don't really focus on the driving while going to work or coming back from work because they're used to it. It happens automatically at times. But for a moment, think about your first day of driving. I'm sure you weren't that confident and a bit scared. And you kept looking at the steering wheel and maybe at the accelerator to make sure you were doing all right. But you did it anyway because of which you are now really good at driving. So just like driving, there are so many skills and experiences in your life that are waiting to be experienced and learned, just like the, ex- the experience and skill of developing uh, a functional, uh, loving family uh, that is in front of you. Make a list and make sure you do those things that you fear because that is the only way of learning and growing. So Eric, uh, could you talk to us about a phase in your life when you had to go through a major life challenge and also how did you overcome it? The one that comes up for me is um, I started college early at the age of 16, and I was too young. And as I mentioned earlier, I thought I was a math and science boy. But when I entered college, physics and calculus and those things really didn't interest me. And I also was discovering girls at that time. And I also liked to play a lot of ping pong and what have you. In other words, I was not college material. And this was during the Vietnam War. And so I flunked out at the age of 17. And I knew that uh, Vietnam was coming next. So this was one of those moments, one of those crossroad moments. I've actually studied this moment in the lives of painters when a war breaks out, the different reactions by painters, different choices they make. Some enlist, some flee to the countryside. At any rate, for me, I had to figure out what to do. I find it very interesting. And I always think about this in retrospect, but I was growing up in Brooklyn. And I took the subway to Manhattan, to Times Square in in the old days. Now it's a ticket office, but in the old days, right in the middle of Times Square was a recruiting office. And I walked into the recruiting office um, and I enlisted in the Army. But because of my math and science background, I had the following realization that I couldn't be in two places at the same time. So I enlisted to go to Korea, believing that I couldn't be in Korea and in Vietnam at the same moment. And ultimately, this worked out uh, for a boy. This is a little odd to say because of all of the darkness of war, but for a boy of 18, those toys, those weapons are very exciting and interesting. And so for me, it was actually an excellent experience. This is all by way of saying I'm not sure what places a, a struggling 17 or 18 or 19 year old has to go nowadays in 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 my time one may be enlisted i don't know what one does today but what's coming up for me at this moment is that we don't have these transitional ceremonies or spaces or opportunities for kids who maybe really don't need college next but need some life experience next where are they to go and and as you look back at your childhood and and at your life what is that one major life lesson that you'd like to share with our listeners maybe in just one sentence if it's just in one sentence it's that despite all of the difficulties of family life there's also nothing more beautiful or meaningful than family life when it works so despite the fact that i'm writing about family difficulties i want to put a big thumbs up for family life well thanks a lot for sharing action tribe there you go despite the challenges 
or the issues that you might be having with your family, it's worth the work. It's worth you taking action towards improving or enhancing the quality of your family life because you are born into that family. And once you have a thriving family, that can actually help you towards uh, transcending, evolving, or finding your life purpose. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Eric. Uh, Action Tribe, many of you want to find out your life purpose. You want to find out the job or business or work that you were meant to do. But for many, finding your life purpose might be a bit too difficult to imagine or visualize at the beginning. So don't worry. Start small. Start right where you are. Because as soon as you take those initial few steps, you will feel a difference in energy and enthusiasm that will ultimately carry you forward on this new quest of yours practice gratitude for the small things in life and like we listen to today the meditation of the snowball technique you can use that as well in order to just focus on the small things in life that make you happy maybe uh, think about a cup of tea maybe a nice breakfast you had maybe a hug from a friend or even getting to spend some time doing your favorite stuff like painting or sketching or even reading a book once you start noticing these small things, many more things will come to your attention. And that's when you fall into the happiness spiral that will engulf you with love and engulf your family with love as well. And using that same energy, you can create whatever you want in life. And as William Morris once said, the secret of happiness lies in taking a genuine interest in all the details of daily life and in elevating them to art. So Eric, as on today, what is your life's calling? I can say it simply now. It's taken me a long time to be able to say it simply, but it's to be of help. It's really that simple. Um, I had more grandiose and narcissistic uh, desires as a young person, but now it's really just to be of help to all of the people out there who are struggling. Love that. And we have now arrived at the last round for today. And this round is called the Wisdom Round. which contains four questions so that our listeners can get some actionable steps that they can use to change their life. So, Eric, what is one piece of advice? In fact, the best piece of advice that someone has ever given you. It's, it's, a, it's a funny one, but when I was a philosophy major, I turned in a paper to a philosophy class, and the philosophy professor said, you should be in psychology. <laughs> so that's that's what comes up for me, is and that's what's second, I realized that the abstractness of philosophy was as little interesting to me as the kind of the abstractness of science had been, that neither philosophy nor science were my true places, but that psychology was. Mm -hmm. So amazing. Name a personal habit that keeps you going. Well, I want to say the morning creativity practice, that that's the one that supports what I said earlier. Uh, and that's probably the one I'll by. I think it's very important for me to know exactly where I'm going at five in the morning so that I'm not caught up in the blandishments of uh, emails or this or that. I know I'm going to my real work first thing every day. So that's, that's what keeps me going. So I'm sure by now many of our listeners want to know, what is your morning routine like? It's to go directly to whatever book I'm working on at that moment. It's the way I've done 50 or 60 books. I don't write a lot each day. I don't need to. Words accumulate over time. I work seven days a week at the things that are important to me. If you were to work just for half an hour, 20 minutes, 10 minutes even on things that are important to you, but if you were to do it in a daily way, you'll have a body of work over time. That work accumulates and you also make yourself proud by living that way. Got it. So name one book that you'd like to recommend for our listeners today. I grew up in the existential tradition, which means that authors like Dostoevsky and Kafka and Orwell and Camus were the important ones for me. If I were to name one book, it would be Camus' The Plague, which is an allegory about World War II. But I think it also speaks to our current uh, world situation and political climate in a beautiful way. So Action Drive, I know how much you love our book recommendations and I know that many of you get these books as soon as you hear them shared on our show. And that's why Audible.com is offering Action Tribe one free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial so that you can get to check out this service. In case you don't know, Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for 
various devices, uh, including bestsellers like The Chakra System by Anadia Judith, Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda, and A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. To download your free book today and start listening right away, go to our website my7chakras.com forward slash free book. Once again, that's my7chakras.com forward slash free book for your free audiobook. So Eric, thank you so much for joining us on today's show. Really enjoyed chatting with you and learning about the dynamics that uh, different types of families have and some things that we can do to improve it. Uh, before you go, tell us one thing that you are grateful for right now and tell us the best way we can find you. Uh, the grateful is easy. We have new twin 10-month-old granddaughters that I babysit four days a week and they are the most fun in the world. So I'm grateful for that. And reaching me, the best way is to come to my main site, which is ericmazel.com, E-R-I-C-M-A-I-S-E-L.com. Or you can write me directly at ericmazel at hotmail.com. Wonderful. Uh, we'll definitely have these links up in the show note. Eric, thank you so much for coming on our show, uh, talking to us about family dynamics. I'm sure many of our listeners are going to get your book as well. We'll have the link in the show notes and also taking us one step closer to a human revolution. Thank you so much for having me. You are listening to My 7 Chakras. Go to mysevenchakras.com. Download your free gift, get inspired and take action. Transform your life today.